Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Elizabeth II. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And we are back. Back. Back in business. And specifically, you are back in business. I'm back in business. I... Uh, thank you so much for all your um, kind words on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. A um, bit of a public health announcement. My P's, B's and V's <laughs> are very tricky, tend to get blurred, but you know, might spice the podcast up a bit. <laughs> you may want to <laughs> guess which words Ali's going to struggle with this week. Yeah, and well, send in your favourites. <laughs> um, and yes, so after all these years, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II... And this is actually Elizabeth the second. We're at, I can't believe it. We're actually at that end point. I, we said all the way through, unless something terrible happens, <laughs> yeah. and it didn't happen to Elizabeth. No. She, she's here, but a little blade. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. I'm sure, she had a little inward joke. She did. Uh, she's <laughs> all those laughs at my expense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh dear. Anyway, so what we do, if you can't remember, because it's been quite a few months since we did Sven Forkbeard, who mm. was an interlude between George VI and Elizabeth II, is that each week we look at one of the monarchs, go through their biography, and then review them on certain factors like how good they were in battle, where they create good scandal, the subjectivity, which is would you want to be a subject under them, mm-hmm. and then how long are they ruled for, how many legitimate children they had, whether they've got that certain style quality that we call the Rex Factor. Exactly. Now, Elizabeth II, as some of you may know, has been queen for quite a long time. Mm. Consequently, we're not going to do her in just one episode, so we're going to have two biography episodes. Mm-hmm. So this is the first of those two, so this will take us up to the point at which she becomes queen. In the second episode, we'll do her as queen, and then it'll be the third episode where we'll actually do all of the reviewing. Yeah. Now, I've got quite a bit of experience with this, Monic. You've, you've I've got, done some research. I've got so. 30 years of first-hand <laughs> source. Yeah. I, I, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar from 83 onwards. Well, I was going to say as well that obviously this is also the first time where our subject for the week is alive. So technically we could commit libel. We'll be very careful. And phrases like first-hand knowledge are the ones <laughs> where I think, well, let's... Still, we're, we're very clear, yeah. Until we get to scandal, let's just keep that one mm. tidied away. Okay. So, Elizabeth II. Yeah. Uh, she was born on the 21st of April in 1926. Same year as the General Strike, and also the same year that A.A. Milne published Winnie the Pooh. Oh, really? So, contrasting... Was it a favourite of her styles? Well, we may oh, well come back to that. that. Um, now, her parents might have had, uh, her parents being George VI and Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the mm. Queen Mother, mm. might have had difficulty conceiving because it took three years um, for them to have Elizabeth after they had got married. And for a royal marriage, yeah. that's quite an important yeah, aspect, exactly. Um, and the doctors decided uh, to have uh, the Queen Mother induced and then deliver, uh, delivered Elizabeth II by caesarean section. Is that a first? Well, I think it may well be. I haven't got that in my notes, but I was reading them before and thought, actually, yeah, that must be the first one. Yeah. Mm. And she's also the last one who is born in the presence of the Home Secretary. That's gross. Why was he there? Which was uh, William Joynton Hicks. Uh, Because that was always customary. After James II and the warming pan, Home Secretary and quite a few other dignitaries. Just to check it. Check it was. was. Oh, dear, I dare. I would not be happy with that. So... 
Um, so Charles... Charles will be the first, all being well, monarch <laughs> not to have been witnessed by... So he's an interloper. Oh, he's alive, <laughs> can't say that. <laughs> exactly, he's fine. But the Queen, what, as a stickler for tradition, the Queen was actually going to have that person there, but then they persuaded that, well, technically, if you invite him, you'll have to invite this person and that oh. person, and the numbers started going up. And they thought, all want to watch. Best keeping it mm. private. Crikey. Um, and people were very pleased when she was born. Uh, the future George VI, who was Prince George at the time, uh, wrote to his parents saying, You don't know what a tremendous joy it is to Elizabeth, as in his wife, and me to have our little girl. We always mm. wanted a child to make our happiness complete, and now that it has happened, it seems so wonderful and strange. And of course, with royals, the first speculation after what is it mm. is, who is it? Mm. What's it going to be called? So he wrote to his father, George V, saying, We're so anxious for her first name to be Elizabeth, as it's such a nice name, and there has been no one of that name in your family for a long time. Elizabeth of York sounds nice too. So, had they already decided that she'd be queen by this time? Like, there was... Well, <laughs> and decided. <laughs> yeah, but they... At this she point... she had a brother? At this point... Well, yeah, if she'd had a brother, then the brother would have taken her over. Even a younger brother. Even a younger brother. And it's only it was interesting, actually, that when we talked about the succession rules mm. earlier in the podcast that I've been listening to our old ones, we said, even now, a brother will overtake a younger oh, sister. Oh, yeah, of now, of course, that's not the case. Now, whoever is born first is oh, that's only in really the line of succession. That's very, very recently. But for Elizabeth, she would have been overtaken by a boy. Okay. She wouldn't necessarily have been expected to become queen at this stage because George V is king. His eldest son is the future Edward VIII. Yeah, and then oh, his yeah, younger brother yeah. was the future. So she was VI. just thinking she'd be, uh, would it be Duchess or something? Yes, although if Edward VIII didn't have children, even without the abdication, it would eventually oh, have yeah. come to her anyway. Yeah. But so she's the first in this sort of generational yeah, line mm-hmm. that comes along. Um, so George is proposing to call her, call her Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and his father George V writes to his wife and says, uh, "I've heard from Bertie about the names. He mentions Elizabeth, Alexandra, Mary." He says nothing about Victoria. Oh, God. How is she still here? I hardly think that necessary. Oh, brilliant. So they drop Victoria. The shadow has been lifted. So she's called Elizabeth after her mother. Yeah. Alexandra after her great-grandmother, the wife of Edward VII, who died six months earlier, and Mary after her grandmother, Queen Mary, wife of George V. Okay. Elizabeth, Alexandra, Mary. And it's not just the royals who are pleased to see her. Everyone is quite excited by this new royal birth. The Daily Graphic. That's, that's no longer still with us. No longer still with us. Uh, no, so the possibility that in the little stranger to Bruton Street, where they were, there may be a future Queen of Great Britain, perhaps even a second and resplendent Queen Elizabeth, is sufficiently intriguing. But let us not burden the bright hour of its arrival with speculation of its royal destiny. So, so nothing particularly changes. No, no. So it was uh, it was definitely a, a tabloid frenzy. It was just like Prince George being born. Very much, right. very much, very excited. Uh, Churchill as well. Yeah, He's quite yeah, taken with that. Yeah. So when he visits uh, a couple of years later at Balmoral in 1928, uh, he wrote to his wife saying, uh, "There is no one here at all except the family, the household, and Princess Elizabeth, age two. The last is a character." She has an air of authority and reflectiveness, astonishing in an infant. How weird for him to see her at two, yeah. and then he is prime minister under her. Mm. That must be really strange. <laughs> yeah. Really, really odd. 
and but particularly her grandparents, George V and Queen Mary, just adore her. Um, so Elizabeth's parents actually go on an extended tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1927. Oh, we covered this in the in the George V mm. episode, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. And um, so they left her with um, with her grandparents, George V and Queen Mary. So whilst she was with them, she started sitting up, started standing, discovered how to roll over. Huh. All the key skills for a future monarch. <laughs> and then learnt to say, ta-ta, bye, and then yates. She's got them all covered, hasn't she? As in pointing at yates. Oh, lights, lights. I see. She didn't she... pronounce it very well. Pretty poor form from the mm, Yeah, yeah. But I reckon she probably got the wave down in there. <laughs> yeah. Well. yeah. She's ready. So Queen Mary wrote to them saying, I don't think you and Elizabeth realise quite what a joy your child is to us and how we love having her with us now and again in the house. She is so sweet and natural and so amusing. Mm. But it's George V who really falls through because he'd been a bit of a dragon parent, mm. but he's just turned to mush by his granddaughter. Because he was very um, critical of Edward VIII. Yes, I mean, he was quite, and he was quite a hard taskmaster for George VI as well, but yeah, particularly Edward VIII. About the turn-up trousers. But, but, so the girl, the, a little granddaughter just melted his heart. Exactly. Oh, um, he had used to play with her, uh, sitting on his knee. Um, he called her Lilibet, because that's oh, how yeah. she used to be able to pronounce her name, and she called him Grandpa England. <laughs> I forgot that. That's brilliant. And uh, as her governess says... <laughs> I really like that. Her governess, uh, Marion Crawford, uh, said, It was wonderful to see them together, the bearded old man and the polite little girl holding onto one of his fingers. She was even at times a trifle patronising. I remember on one occasion when he drew a rather unhandy picture for her. She stood at his elbow, watching, encouraging him. You really are not at all a bad drawer, she told him kindly. And uh, when he was so ill, because he went to Bognor Regis to recover for a little bit, or Bognor, as it was at the time. Uh, When he was so ill, a part of his tonic his doctors recommended for his convalescence was her presence. She went down with him to Bognor Regis and used to play about on the sand while the old king sat in the sunshine watching her. Well, that's lovely. That's lovely. Because, yeah, that works. I had my niece with me when I was recovering. It was lovely. (laughs) (laughs) And you were just uh, really nasty to your children. Oh, no, honestly. uh, They're not even here. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, yeah, Marion Crawford, her governor, she was a young woman because George VI wanted someone uh, more energetic to play Mm. with his children. Marion Crawford? Marion Crawford. Oh, right, okay. Elizabeth governor. So, George VI wanted someone young because when he'd been a child growing up, all the governesses and people were really old and Mm. couldn't play with them, couldn't have much fun. Um, And she later published a really lovely little memoir called The Little Princesses in Mm. 1950, which is about her time as governess. Um, But as a result, she was permanently ostracised by the royals. That's kind of a running theme, is that they don't like any mm. any um, beans spilled. Though, of course, ironically, this is just a really nice and mm. cosy little book, whereas all the things that have come subsequently... And Paul Burrell's. Well, and, and indeed the sort of Prince Charles and Diana's in terms of their own public yeah, yeah, reflections true. of what they've done. But at the time, um, it didn't go down well, so it was quite sad. She died alone in 1988 without ever being reconciled. Well, that's sad. That is sad. sad. However, she gives us a lot of information with this book about oh, yeah. childhood, so right. we're yeah. quite grateful, Smashing. even if the Queen mm. perhaps not. So as a young girl, Elizabeth, very sunny disposition, but she's also quite shy, like her father, George mm. VI. Uh, but also he's got that sense of duty right. as well. So like Churchill said, that air of authority. She's always got this kind of mm. slightly regal disposition. Um, so very influenced by grandparents as well, that sort of calm dignity. But she's also got hints of OCD, very well-ordered. Right. Very neat and precise. There's one thing where she took to getting out of bed at night just to straighten her shoes and clothes because they weren't 
worried that they weren't quite neat in the right place wow. at the end of the day. That's a familiar thing, then. George VI was... Do, do, we, do we say that about George VI? Not so much the OCD, but the family, the Windsor family definitely has quite a sort of punctiliousness right. okay. about little things. What little thing? Mm, so uh, uh, I think cousin Margaret Rhodes described her as a jolly little girl, but fundamentally sensible and well-behaved. Mm. So, you know, you're not expecting scandal no, from not. this little girl. Very reliable. Now, initially, as we said, she wasn't actually expected to become queen yeah. at any stage, and her parents weren't particularly bothered about her education. They just wanted her to be happy and have a lovely childhood with lots of playing. Right. So not too focused on academic yeah. things. So the experts really only brought in for history, which they learnt from the time of King Egbert, who was the grandfather of Alfred the uh, Great, mm. to the Statute of Westminster, which is in the 1930s when they sorted out the Commonwealth as opposed right. to the Empire. So that was her main thing. And mm. also languages. She had a little bit of education in. Mm. However, George V had a very strong sense of what the priorities were in the education of a young girl, mm-hmm. which he told to the governess. For goodness sake, teach her to write a decent hand. That's all I ask you. Not one of my children could write properly. They all do it exactly the same way. I like a hand with some character in it. What does he mean? Like, just get the handwriting? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, I suppose, you know, with a monarch now, they can't go off into battle, they can't make laws. Just signing things. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> signing and waving. And practice your scissors every <laughs> single day. <laughs> Uh, but there's a bit of conflict in the family because Crawfy, as she's known, Marion Crawford, right. the governess, she's much more serious-minded, so she tries to instill a more disciplined regime, you know, with a timetable and lessons and mm-hmm. things like that. But the Queen Mother was really quite keen to prevent any kind of full school day. Even starting at 11 was a little bit off for the Queen Mother. Agreed. And uh, she urged nothing too strenuous either in the afternoons. and want to tire them out. And she also would tend to arrange health checks during the day, i.e. during school time, so she'd get a dentist appointment, so Elizabeth wouldn't have oh, to go to a, school. A strategic health check. Yeah, right. and would allow them to stay up late at night so they weren't really fully ready in the morning. Wow. And they did a, eventually come Proper hippie parenting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Royal Librarian apparently was unimpressed when uh, the Queen Mother bought uh, 18 books for Elizabeth to read all of which were by P.G. Woodhouse. Quite right. <laughs> now that's an education. Exactly, that's all you need. However, she's not going to be alone for too long, because in 1930, Elizabeth is joined by a sister. Yay! Margaret. Margaret, very, very different character to Elizabeth. She's much more vibrant and colourful. She's got a gift for acting, singing, even mimicry. Though she actually helps put a stop to Elizabeth's getting up out of bed and ordering all of her clothes, because Margaret just does an impression of it. Oh, right, brilliant. And Excellent. it just puts Elizabeth off doing it again. Margaret always seemed like a lot of fun. Mm. Mm. And we'll see just how much yeah. as the episodes go on. Um, but, yeah, so a good example is actually Crawford. There's one of those lovely things we see the difference of uh, childhoods then to now, mm. is that uh, sometimes the girls, uh, as a treat, will be given some cubes of sugar. God, that's what are they horses? <laughs> exactly. That's terrible. Maybe that's what. Uh, no, why do they keep going to the dentist? Well, indeed. Um, so the difference between them is that Margaret kept the whole lot in her small hot hand and pushed it into her mouth. Lilibet, however, carefully sorted hers out on the table, large and small pieces together, and then ate it very daintily, methodically. So Margaret just takes the whole lot and goes <laughs> all in the mouth. Yeah. Whereas Elizabeth puts them all mm. in place and then delicately. Right. Taps them down. 
But despite this, they actually got on very well. Mm. And despite only being four years older, because she's got this sort of mature, regal air, Elizabeth takes on the role of a sort of a motherly, elderly sister trying to look out for her. So she'd come out with these slightly pompous phrases like, I really don't know what we're going to do with Margaret Crawfee. <laughs> oh right, Not so they're the two adults to have yeah. a child. So trying to keep Margaret out of uh, out of trouble at official functions. So Elizabeth was quite worried when George VI, her, their father, was being crowned. Mm-hmm. She was a bit worried about what Margaret would be like at the coronation. Oh right. So <laughs> she was saying, "I do hope she won't disgrace us all by falling asleep in the middle, Crawfee. After all, she is very young for the coronation, isn't she?" Wow. How old was she then? In 30, when was he crowned? Uh, so this is 36, yeah. So Margaret's six and Elizabeth is ten. Wow. Uh, but thankfully, it all goes quite well. She was wonderful, Crawfee. I only had to nudge her once or twice when she played with the prayer books too loudly. Mm-hmm. It's really sad, though, that she didn't... That clearly she liked Crawford. Mm. Mm. And then completely lost contact with her during all of her reign. Yeah. Probably mm. would have been a nice crutch for her. Yeah. Uh, and garden parties are another one where apparently... The ba- I presume from this advice that uh, was given that this meant that on previous occasions Margaret hadn't stuck to this advice. Oh. So uh, Elizabeth was saying to her, and if you do see someone with a funny hat, Margaret, you <laughs> must not point at it and laugh, and you must not be in too much of a hurry to get through the crowds to the tea table. That's not polite either. <laughs> she sounds annoying. Because <laughs> <laughs> telling her sister what to do. Uh, and practical jokes was uh, something that Margaret quite liked as well. So uh, quite often equerries would f- put their hands in their pockets and find that someone had put sticky line balls Excellent. down in yeah. there. So Elizabeth used to love watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. she never wanted Perfect. to quite get involved. So yeah. Her face would go red while Margaret's going off playing these <laughs> little games. But it was almost a bit of a problem for Elizabeth growing up because Margaret would actually overshadow her. Mm. events because Elizabeth's quite happy to drift into the background whereas Margaret much more outgoing mm. quite happy to be the centre of attention yeah. so Crawfee actually started to ask people not to invite Margaret oh, to right. think sometimes just to, to force bring Elizabeth, Elizabeth out. Elizabeth actually said herself oh it's so much easier when Margaret's there everybody laughs at what Margaret says and she it gives her an excuse to just be in the shadows mm. right but it is a very happy family life. Yeah. As we said, they're all just reading P.G. Woodhouse books, not getting up until 11 o'clock, staying Sounds up late. bliss. And they refer to themselves as We Four. So you've got George VI and the Queen Mother and then Elizabeth oh, and Margaret. Lovely, this tight little unit. family unit. Parents doted on them, very loving uh, background. They'd play lots of games after tea, splashing in the bath, pillow fights in the bedroom, mm. keeping them up late at night to yeah. spare the governess. But yeah. you know what you prefer when you were a yeah, child. Definitely. <laughs> Um, they established girl guides at uh, Buckingham Palace. So there's a company formed because they wanted the children to be able to interact with ordinary children. So who establishes girl guides? The, the, the scouting association, just to get them involved? Uh, no, the girl guides is already there, but they established a little pack just uh, at Buckingham Palace. Right, OK. In order for the princesses to mix with ordinary children. Oh, brilliant. Although, as uh, Patricia Mountbatten noted, well, there's ordinary and ordinary, of course. Mm. So I think they're quite carefully vetted yeah. as to The who. local children of Belgrave. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but still, I mean, Buckingham Palace is quite a good place to do that sort of thing. So they'd use the corridors for signalling. Mm. A little message was going from one end to the other. Use the grounds of Windsor for trekking and campfires. Oh, brilliant. Um, but Elizabeth and Margaret are quite important for the perception of the monarchy at the time because they are the next generation. Yeah, yeah. So as I said, the media always talking about the little princesses, always featuring little things about them, photos on magazines and 
So she's really had this her entire life. Absolutely. Poor woman. And interestingly, for the first decade, um, the most regular family visitor that used to come along and play with them was her uncle David, i.e. Edward VIII. Yeah. And he used to be on all the time. Yeah, He took part in some of their after-tea games, like Snap and Happy Families, and he gave her the Winnie the Pooh books. Ah, brilliant. Mm. Okay. So it's only really the abdication crisis which he kind of disappears from her life. But up until that point, they'd actually been he'd been quite close to his brother George and also to the girls. So she lost two people then. She lost the governess and her uncle, who was mm, close. Ultimately. Wow. Uh, but the abdication crisis is very important in terms of Elizabeth's world view and her role in it and the duty and the personal being sacrificed for the yeah. public. And, all and that she sort already of seemed to be displaying that kind of attitude yeah, anyway. Exactly. Just, just right. tightened it even mm. more. Um, but when the abdication crisis comes along, of course, that means her father becomes the king, George VI, mm. and it means that they have to move to Buckingham Palace. Mm. And the girls aren't too happy about this. Mm. When Elizabeth finds out, her reaction is, you mean forever? <laughs> and Margaret uh, says, isn't this all a bore? We've got to leave our nice house now. I've only just learned to write York. Exactly. Um, and, of course, this means that Elizabeth is now the heiress presumptive. Mm. I.e., if there aren't any sons of George VI come along, she is the next in line. Mm. And it does all kind of sink in at one point. So Elizabeth sees an envelope for Her Majesty the Queen and then reflects, that's mummy now, isn't it? Mm. Of course it is. And then Margaret says, does that mean you'll have to be the next queen? Yes, I suppose it does. And she's ten. Mm. To which Margaret then responds, poor you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But of course, as we did with George VI, difficult times are on the horizon for her and for everybody else in the form of Adolf Hitler and the Second World War. Oh, he comes on and ruins it every ruins time. It for everybody. Um, she'd been following his progress in the newspapers with some alarm. So she said to Crawfy, Oh dear Crawfy, I hope he won't come over here. Oh wow. So she's, so she's aware she of what's was, going on. At age 10 or when Hitler came found 33, age 8... Yeah, it's probably more from 36, 37, 38 that she really... But still aware of world events. World so she'd affairs, been sort of yeah. pushed this, do you think? Yeah, yeah. she would have well. been looking at this. Particularly now that she is the next oh, in right, line, yeah. it would have been pushed a little bit more. Uh, very upset when Neville Chamberlain resigned. Mm. I cried, Mammy. Oh, really? Very upset. Oh. And also, uh, they, she and Elizabeth had been studying Jane's fighting ships during the war, which is mm. sort of book of all the... The almanac. Yeah. And so when the ship, the Royal Oak, was sunk, they're really upset about it. Saying, like, it can't be. All those nice sailors. Mm. So like a lot of children, like a lot of people in the country, because it's so close to home, you're really following it. Yeah. As this sort of live... What was the Royal Oak? I think it was aircraft car, wasn't it? Mm. Not sure. Not sure. Mm. We'll find out. Um, and she gets a little bit of experience of life in the war, of course. Mm. It doesn't really escape anyway. Lord Hailsham suggested sending them to Canada, the girls. Yes. Uh, but the Queen Mother refused, so they mostly lived at Windsor. Uh, but they staged pantomimes, uh, Elizabeth and Margaret, to raise money for the Queen's Wool Fund. What's that? Uh, I think literally what it sounds like. Wool? It was, it was just money for obviously making clothes and then... Oh, right. It, so, I thought you know, they were going to do Victoria and start knitting socks. Well, maybe. maybe. <laughs> and she was also, as you'd imagine, very meticulous in cleaning her gas mask. Mm, yes. Followed all the instructions. The gas mask. Exactly. Um, like... Her parents and Churchill, she was a bit of a pain when it came to air raids. Right. Because she just loved to look 
Oh yeah, yeah. Churchill standing on the top of Whitehall, <laughs> having a look. Yeah, having a look. So uh, Crawford um, used to have to try and drag them in with Elizabeth going, "Do let me see what is happening." Mm. With her eyes bulging and looking really excited, and she had to be taken away from the windows. Yeah, yeah, quite right. So, curious, yeah, curious young girl. Bombs. That's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, hints of battliness, perhaps. Oh yes, nice. Looking at bombs. Mm. Um, because her parents are so busy and they're away quite a lot of the time, that means that Elizabeth is a little bit more independent for the first time in her life. So she's forced to come out of her shadow. Because her parents are going around the co- touring the country during yeah, the war. Yeah, right. and being based in other places. Um, so Elizabeth actually has to start playing the hostess um, at certain events when people come to visit. So how old is she at the outbreak in 39? She's, she's 13 30... at the outbreak. Okay, then she's... 19 by then. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's her adolescence Mm. for the war, really. Um, US soldiers were always very much charmed when they visited and met the princesses. Charming bunch coming over here, (laughs) senior girls and the queen. I don't know. Uh, But unfortunately, they didn't didn't impress too much for the girls, because they always tended to open with, and I won't do the accent of America, (laughs) (laughs) one accent they have. I have a little girl at home just your age. Yeah. And they all used to say this, though. So Margaret one time noticed, Crawfee, the children there must be in America, all our age, billions of them. <laughs> Precocious, <don't we? laughs> But Elizabeth also actually starts playing a role in public affairs for the very first time during the Second World War. And in 1940, she delivers a broadcast to the children of the Empire, which is her first ever broadcast. Age 14? Wow. That's pretty... That's pretty good going, isn't it? And we can hear that broadcast now. Oh, right! Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. We know, every one of us, But in the end, all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. That's the Queen and Margaret. Wow. Does she? I mean, I presume she didn't write that. No, I think someone probably would have written that. Really touching. Yeah. I mean, a bit screwed to the end. Good night, but it was really. Hmm. It was. Child to child, which I hadn't expected. Yeah, because it was the children's broadcast. I think it would have been at like six o'clock in the evening or something. So sort of going to bed. Wow, that's really sweet. Mm. Oh, that's um, yeah. I just kind of assumed that she'd be a bit imperious in tone and t- <laughs> you know, like a queen in waiting to other children. But she was just chatting. Just a girl chatting. Yeah, mm. that's lovely. So she's so, done her broadcast. Yeah. To the nation, to the nation's children. Well, the the children of the empire, of course. Uh, But then she actually sees a little bit of active service. Mm. 1942, she's made the colonel of the Grenadier Guards, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a sort of a show. She wasn't throwing grenades. No, not at uh, 16. Right. 
I'd uh, love to throw a grenade at 16. Well, and that's why you were Ooh. not made <laughs> of the uh, Grenadier Guards. In 1943, she had her first solo engagement visiting um, right. Grenadier yeah. Guards. And she then, in 1944, was made a Councillor of State. This is when she turns 18. Mm. And, of course, George VI is now able to actually, because the war's going better, he's now actually able to go abroad and visit troops, mm. sort of in the Mediterranean, in Italy. Um so she is enabled to act as one of his counsellors in the event of his incapacity or absence. So she's been given real power there. Real power. So in fact, when uh, he goes off to Italy for a few months, she is then... She's regent. Effectively regent. To wow. Extent. And she's had a very sheltered upbringing, so she has to come to terms with rather harsh realities of mm. what the world is like, um, such as signing the reprieve for um, a murderer who is um, going to be given capital punishment. Why, why was he reprieved? I mean, I, I don't agree with capital punishment. I don't, I don't know the specific mm. circumstances mm. of the case, but nevertheless, for her reading about it, she was saying, you know, what makes people do such terrible things? One ought to know. There should be some way to help them. I have so much to learn about people. That's a really liberal attitude, though. Rather than thinking he's a terrible person, lock him up, mm. say, we need to help him. Why is he in this position? Mm. Wow. I'm liking her a lot. <laughs> Good start. 1945, um, she trained as a driver and mechanic in the Women's Auxiliary T- Territorial Service. Mm. So she's actually technically there serving in the armed forces. Uh, front line at home. At home. Mm. Mm. And the front line is quite far away in 1945, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is why Juggle Six lets it happen. Right. But nevertheless, she gets yeah, to wear there. her uh, unfashionable khaki pants, etc. And there were even plans to try and quell Welsh nationalism, which was rising a little bit during the war, uh, with Herbert Morrison suggesting that she should be made the Princess of Wales. Yeah, why isn't she? Well, it's because it doesn't happen. If the next in line is a girl, they don't get made Princess of Wales. This maybe becomes a bit of a precedent, uh, because George VI thought that this would make any future husband the Prince of Wales. And he didn't like the idea of false title. Although it's just semantics, it's kind of a bit... Well, it's also wrong, because only the man is able to bestow his partner with a title purely on the basis of him having one. I mean, so Diana as Princess of Wales is because she was the wife of the Prince of Wales. And she had to have a title after Mm. the And by being married to somebody of that title, the woman takes the female equivalent. You're right. But the reverse wasn't the case. So just because Elizabeth married ultimately, um, Philip, yeah. he wouldn't automatically become the Prince of Wales because women don't bestow titles yeah. by marriage. Okay, okay. Right, with you. But she doesn't become Princess of Wales. No, she doesn't. In some. Um, what does instead happen is that just after the war, in 1946, she's uh, inducted into the Welsh Gorsed of Bards at the National Eisteddfod. Uh, but of course on VE Day, mm. the war is over. Hey. And the princesses get this very... We won. We won. Hey. <laughs> And we get this very rare moment uh, for Elizabeth and Margaret to be almost anonymous. So they were given permission to join the crowd celebrating in the streets. How can that happen? So they just went went around, running around, enjoying, dancing and singing and celebrating with the massive public. And they didn't recognise her? Most people didn't. There was one person who had a little dance and then with them and then sort of said thank you in a way that was like, I recognise oh, her. Oh, wow. Poetry. But yeah, generally they were able to... Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And they joined then their parents and, of course, Churchill on the balcony. Mm, famous scene. Waving to everybody else as well. 
Um, and Elizabeth really enjoyed it. It's quite a big moment that she still remembers. So she looked back on it and said, um, We asked my parents if we could go out and see for ourselves. I remember we were terrified of being recognised. I remember lines of unknown people linking arms and walking down Whitehall. All of us just swept along in a tide of happiness and relief. She didn't even have, like, any police escort? I'm not sure if maybe they might have been elsewhere, but with that many people, you know, millions you of people in the crowd, yeah, you just get lost. That I'm shocked. I think it was just such a moment of... Nationalisation. Nationalisation. It just... Well... I wouldn't have thought about it. That's probably the most free she's been in her entire life. Yeah. She could have hopped on the tube and gone out there. Yeah. But for her, there is something a bit more personal to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Prince Philip. Ah. Has he been in the background or is she about to meet him? He's been in the background. So Prince Philip... Um, it was, and he was a prince in his own right, a prince of Greece, mm. but he later becomes obviously prince of this country. But his father was the fourth son of George I of Greece. So Philip is the grandson of right. this guy. But there was no other Greek blood in the family because the Greeks actually lacked a royal family and they actually just effectively went window shopping around the families of Europe looking for someone to be king. Really? Who so did they, they settle on? Well, so they settled on this family, right. so George I of Greece. They didn't, weren't actually Greek. Mm. To any great extent, they just got asked. All right. Do you want to be the royal family? Right place, right time. All right. Yeah. But so he's often known as Philip the Greek, but he's mm. not really very. Yeah. Where was he from originally? Greek. Well, I mean, Philip is. It's a Greek name, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah, and he is from Greece, but his grandparents just got mm. oh, invited wow. over. Um, the Greek prime minister was overturned in 1917, and the family went into exile until 1920. Mm. So it's all a bit. Up in the air. And indeed, in 1921, Philip is born on a dining room table at Mon Repo. So he's oh, really? on the run when he's yeah. born. So he's not born into quite the same... Oh, he's born on the kitchen table. Comfort, he? yeah, as Elizabeth. His father was given a death sentence um, for being a military commander who's suffering a defeat. Mm. But because of links to Britain, Britain negotiates that he's just um, given exile right. instead. So the family forced to leave. Um, and Philip was travelling in a cot made from a fruit box. Wow. So as such, he's not particularly patriotic with regards to Greece. No, you can imagine. So, you yeah. know, he, he later um, later uh, reflected on it. A grandfather assassinated and a father condemned to death does not endear me to the perpetrators. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I've been looking forward to the first Philip quote for a long time. <laughs> um... And again, unlike Elizabeth, he does not have this nice, tight-knit, happy family. Mm-hmm. They're all really broken up. So um, when no one is still a child, the mother and father really parted company. His father went off um, with a lover somewhere else. His mother, Alice, uh, succumbed to what was called at the time religious mania right. in 1925. Freud, the Freud, yeah. Sigmund Freud, pres- uh, prescribed exposing her gonads to x-rays. Because he believes that this would accelerate the menopause and thus get her out of this rather unpleasant, heightened senses. Yeah. Wow. Good grief. Uh, it didn't work terribly well, so in 1930 she was actually institutionalised. It's not even a hundred years ago, basically, prescribing mm. leeches. Yeah. 
uh, leeches have been a bit nicer, to be honest. Yeah. Um, his sisters, all his older sisters that he had, they married, so Philip just stayed with some slightly obscure English relatives. Not obscure, but, you know, mm. not that close mm. English relatives. Went to boarding schools. His favourite sister and uh, all of her family were killed in a plane crash in 1937. Oh, goodness His me. uncle and guardian, Lord Milford Haven, died in 1938. Oh. So he's, he's had a very different, a very difficult... Poor bloke, that is terrible. But quite a hardy character, Philip. So, again, reflecting on this, he said, It's simply what happened. The family broke up. My mother was ill, my sisters were married, my father was in the south of France. I just had to get on with it. You do. One does. Well, that's proper sip up a net. It is. Fantastic. And another odd thing, looking back, particularly when, you know, you think of him now as this 90-year-old old Mm. man... Young man, very strikingly handsome, very dashing, charming, witty, intelligent, and as we've seen from that quote, not particularly ruffled by the trauma of no. his early years. He's yeah, just sort of gets on with it, really. And um, he went to a private school, uh, boarding school called Gordonston, oh, yeah. uh, which had a big emphasis on outdoor physical activity, mm. sort of military discipline, austere comfort. So you know, you'd have cold showers and early morning runs. Yeah, but. Philip really thrives on this. That's the kind of person that he is, really. Yeah. Um, and his headmaster, a German called Hahn, um, described him as often naughty, never nasty. Prince Philip is a born leader, but will need the exacting demands of a great service to do justice to himself. His best is outstanding. His second best is not good enough. That's that's been said of me at school. <laughs> My brother, <laughs> often naughty, never nasty. <laughs> And if, it, if I could have a, have a try, I'll be all right, but if not... <laughs> He's in a pod. Mm. And the actress Joanna Lumley reflected, Prince Philip is just the best dinner companion. The best! That's a brilliant Joanna Lumley impression. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's, he's good company. He's quite fun, he's outgoing, he's hardy. Yeah. And he's the kind of, uh, kind of man who might impress an impressionable, shy girl yeah. with a rather sheltered yeah. upbringing. Now, they are related. Um, they are third cousins through great-grandparents, Victoria and Albert. That's, that's, re- that's distant enough, I reckon. Distant enough, but then this is going back a long time. But do you remember Edwig, who had the menage à trois with his oh, girlfriend? Yeah, 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 yeah. His marriage was... Um, annulled. His marriage was annulled uh, because of the relationship being too close with his wife mm. but it was further apart than really than and this they one. didn't really give a bit of a fig for those kind <laughs> no, of things exactly. those, they? And, and also the great aunt Queen Alexandra they had another line of descent through there well still I mean it makes Christmas shopping cheaper it does and technically that means that Philip is something like 700th in line to the throne <laughs> excellent so again That's, he's got his work cut out there he, he does he needs a war and also, in 1993, it was Philip's DNA that let scientists confirm the identity of the remaining members of uh, the Russian Tsar Nicholas II's family, the ones who were assassinated in 1917. Wow. His DNA. You saw Philip? Yeah. Technically, their first meeting probably been in 1934 or 1937 at family weddings, but mm. a bit Elizabeth's party, you know, at that point, mm. really make any kind of impression. Their first real meeting is in Dartmouth in 1939, the Naval College. A few weeks before the war started, Philip had enrolled at the Royal Naval College and uh, the royal family were just paying a visit. So Philip is 18 at this time, Elizabeth is 13. Mm. So Philip, you know, this is peak of this good-looking boy, mm. Elizabeth, just starting to become yeah, aware of boys. Yeah. 
Um, Crawfee noted that he was a fair-haired boy, rather like a Viking, with a sharp face and piercing blue eyes. He was good-looking, though rather off-hand in his manner. Mm. So a bit of swagger and mm. arrogance about him. Another tick, I yeah. believe, for the girls. Um, he was a bit bored with what they were doing at the time, so he took Elizabeth and Margaret to the tennis courts and just went running around jumping over the nets. Fun. Um, Elizabeth was impressed. How good he is, Crawfee. How high he can jump. Crawfee's not quite so impressed, a little older and wiser. Yeah. I thought he showed off a good deal, but the girls were much impressed. She, Elizabeth, never took her eyes off him the whole time. He was quite polite to her, but did not pay her any special attention. He spent a lot of time teasing plump little Margaret. Because she would be nine. Yes, Elizabeth's quite... Uh, Margaret's quite young at this time. She doesn't stay plump. She mm-hmm. was just a very beautiful young woman. But at the time, everyone teased her for being right. small and round. <laughs> um, but Crawfee says, you know, the next day, the fair-haired boy, who turned out to be Prince Philip of Greece, came to lunch again. All eyes were on him, which he obviously enjoyed. Lilibet asked him, What would you like for, to eat? What would you like? You really must make a good meal, for I suppose it's your last of the day. Philip had several platefuls of shrimps and a banana split, among other trifles. To the little girls, a boy of any kind is always a strange creature out of another world. Lilibet sank, p- sat pink-faced, enjoying it all very much. To Margaret, anyone who could eat so many shrimps was a hero. <laughs> but that was... Um, that was- Crawfee. Crawfee's yeah. in that. Excellent. I've got to read that book. It is. It's worth a read, The Little Princesses. Um, and then when he left, the naval recruits all had to row back to their ships, but uh, Philip was last to turn back because he was still showing off and waving. Mm. Um, to which George VI sort of muttered, oh, damn young fool. Mm. <laughs> uh, but Elizabeth later admitted that she'd fallen immediately in love. Ah. Pretty much love at first sight. Now, when it came to the war, for Philip, it was a little bit awkward at first, because initially Greece was neutral, mm. so he had to be kept out of the main theatre of war, even though he was in the navy, right. which he found a bit frustrating. But when Germany invaded Greece, he could have a more active role. Uh, so, 1941, the Battle of Cape Matapan, he was in action against the Italian fleet in a nighttime engagement, and he was manning the searchlights, focusing on right. Elizabeth's, uh, on Italian ships, which he was mentioned in dispatches. Wow. Plus, mm. at the Battle of Crete in 1941, they were under constant threat of bombing, and indeed his uncle, Lord Mountbatten, uh, ship was actually sunk in that battle. Oh, right, yeah. Very dangerous. Crete was constantly attacked by the Germans, wasn't it? Mm. Paratroopers. Yeah, yeah, very strategic significance, mm. wasn't it? 1942, he becomes one of the youngest first lieutenants in the Navy. And on the HMS Wallace, he um, showed very uh, cunning guile uh, in trying to outdo the Germans. There was one night, a very bright moon, so the ship, very easy targets for the German bombers. And indeed, a whole sort of squadron of bombers comes along. Initial bombs hit the sort of side of the ship. Didn't do too much damage, but a second strike clearly would have wiped them out because they mm. knew exactly where they were and the moon was so br- brightly lit, no way they were going to miss. Mm. Philip had the bright idea of getting a group of men to lash some large planks together into a raft, which they put into the sea, mm. and then they activated um, some uh, some smoke f- uh, flares on it huh. and set it alight and then set it off so that when the German bombers came back, they presumed that this was the burning um, yeah, sort of wreckage yeah. of their ship yeah. bombed the raft instead. Wow, Destroyed that's that. brilliant. The ship got out. Or at least some smoke cover for the, while they do leave. Yeah. And his final year, the boy was on board the Wallace accompanying the Allied landings of Sicily in 1943, and he was in Tokyo Bay when Japan surrendered in 1945. Why was he... Oh, he, so he just sort of... He was redeployed mm. to the Pacific Theatre, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. After the war, thoughts, of course, turn to engagement. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth's now of age. 
Mm. Philip's had a good service, which commends him. Mm. Um, so she writes to him during the war as well. So the romance has started to blossom as sort of pen pals. And whenever he came home, he was quite a continual visitor. He'd come along to the pantomimes. Right. And uh, Crawfee noted that uh, suddenly she began to take a bit more trouble with her appearance. And it's suddenly, on certain nights, it would matter a little bit more what she was wearing. And it would later transpire that that was on the evening that Philip would be attending. And she'd sort of come up to her slightly shyly and say, Crawfee, someone's coming tonight. So she really just... Who's loved this man from the age of 13? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Crikey, 75 years. Um, and, you know, Crawfee said on Philip that he loved her very much. He was a forthright and completely natural young man, given to say what he thought. There was nothing of the polished courtier about him. He came into the palace like a refreshing sea breeze. I often saw him wandering around in his shirt sleeves. No way, that's outrageous. A little bit scandalous there. What was George V to make of that? Exactly. A uh, lot of speculation in the press about the romance when, of course, they'd be seen together, so mm. people start to think. Occasionally, Elizabeth will be giving gentle heckles of, where's Philip? Ah, God, so, you know, I naively thought the press was so much more... Respectful. Respectful in those days. It's a little bit nicer than perhaps it was now, so I don't yeah. think they were going around trying to get photos of Philip coming out of swimming pools or with yeah, his hair. Bars or whatever, yeah. Um, now, Mount Basson at this point tries to play a bit of matchmaker because mm. he's related to both of them mm. and he wants to increase his influence. He'd arranged the meeting at Dartmouth. So oh, he'd right. been the one that managed to push Philip into yeah. getting a chance to see her. And he liked to see himself as a matchmaker, so he's often credited as a key orchestrator, but actually he was kind of kept at arm's length a little bit. And Philip actually wrote to him saying, please, I beg you, not too much advice in an affair of the heart, or I shall be forced to do the wooing by proxy. I'm not being rude, but it is apparent that you like the idea of being the general manager of this little show, and I'm rather afraid that she might not take to the idea as docilely as I do. That's quite diplomatic. Yeah, very diplomatic, Mm. very astutely done. Thankfully for Philip, George VI was impressed by Philip's war record. George VI, who had fought at Jutland, also a Navy man. Mm, oh, yeah, of course he did, yeah. So he's quite impressed with this. He likes his down-to-earth naval manners. As he says, I like Philip. He's intelligent, has a good sense of humour, and thinks about things in the right way. The Navy way. The Navy way. Mm. Um, in Barrel Moral, 1947, Philip gets invited right. to join the family. So Presumably is, by the king. Though, yeah, yeah, by the king. Yeah. So this is seen as kind of a little mm. testing to see how things work out. And Philip and Elizabeth decided to get engaged. Um, and George VI had no objection to this, despite Philip being a little bit cheeky. So the first time where he's up there and he sees oh, George VI wearing a kilt, Philip rather elaborately curtsies with a big no. smile. <laughs> wow. He's really... Oh, crikey. Pushing the boat up. brave. <laughs> pulled it off, though. He did. He pulled yeah, it off. Excellent. However, George did ask to wait until Elizabeth turned uh, 21. And after we four... The family unit had done a tour of South Africa that year. Right. So having to wait, mm. just to check that she still wants to marry him after mm. she comes back. But really, he wants a bit of time with them as a family again. Oh, probably. Because once yes. she's married, yeah, that's it. she'll be gone. Absence only made the heart grow fonder, of course. And their engagement was announced in July 1947. Philip uh, changed his name, which had been Schleswig Holstein Sonderberg Glucksburg. You would, yeah. That's Bit German. Enough. Yeah. Uh, changed it to Mount Batten. Easier. And uh, he renounced all of his Greek and Danish titles and converted from Greek Orthodoxy to Anglicanism. Right. So, Church okay. of England man. Yeah. Marriage is fine to go ahead. Mm-hmm. Not everyone at court was very welcoming of him. A lot of people viewed him with suspicion. Mm. 
Because there was some controversy about him. He didn't have any financial standing. Mm-hmm. Foreign-born. Hadn't been to Eton. Oh, wow. Sisters had married Nazis. A bit, oh, bit more yeah, of a... Okay, no, <laughs> yeah, so. it was a bit, mm-hmm. yeah, bit more understandable. And he was a bit of a moderniser. So right. not one of us, mm. as it were. Even, you know, a little reeking of Edward VIII a little bit with his short-sleeved shirts and yeah. all this sort of thing, you know. Outrageous. Very dangerous. Alan Lascelles, who was George VI's assistant private secretary, described him as a penniless foreign princeling. Yeah. Well, I mean, what other pickings were there for her? Uh, all of Europe, the houses of Europe. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was a man she loved. A Windsor courtier apparently was patronisingly explaining the castle's history to him, showing him around, only for Philip to interrupt him and say, yes, I know, my mother was born here. Oh, was she? Yeah. That's where their third cousin's from, his... Mm. Yeah. OK, I'm going to go back and look at the Family tree, trees. but that's... Yeah, that <laughs> is much closer than I thought. The Queen Mother was also rather suspicious of him. Mm. She was suspicious of anyone with German connections, so she referred to him as Philip the Hun. Ooh, ooh, that's nice. And uh, she was said to have been unkeen on the union, but George VI was okay with it, and Elizabeth II was never considering anybody else. They got on in the end, though, because, I mean, she lived till 2002, so... Awkward. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Lots of mother-in-law jokes, I can imagine, from Prince Philip. (laughs) I can't imagine Prince Philip still having a mother-in-law, but it's so recent, it's amazing. And as Crawford said, he thought it was probably a long time since anyone wore quite such unconventional garments around the palace. His favourite kit was flannel trousers... Not even always new or creased. And a tennis shirt with an open neck, always rolled up sleeves. Hatless he would arrive, driving his own small sports car, always in a hurry to see Lilibet. So he he must have been, yeah, complete breath of fresh air, more like the normal person yeah. of the age. I mm. uh, driving, he was a little bit notorious for his driving. Um, there was one night he o- overturned the car in a ditch. How did he get out of that? Got out, got out, okay. Um, Palace chauffeurs were reluctant to let him um, use their cars for fear of it coming back with unexplained dents and scratches. (laughs) And it's a great thing that when, um, just before the eve eve of their wedding, a policeman pulled him over for racing down the mall, Mm. to which Philip um, said, Sorry, officer, but I've got an appointment with the Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) <laughs> and the policeman knew what it was and took it in good Oh, story. you. Phil. You shouldn't have hit those pedestrians. Yeah. <laughs> Queen as well has got a bit of a reputation for cavalier driving. Really? It's a bit of a family trait. She doesn't wear a seatbelt, which is legal on private roads, which mm. is the only place she can drive. Uh, but she has had to apologise to families in the past for driving at 60 miles an hour in the Royal Parks. The Queen has apologised to families. Because, you know, people just walking around... And then her just going, tootling along at 60 odd miles an hour. Wow. I can't <laughs> believe That's amazing. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it doesn't have a licence as well, of course. But, I mean, these all this lands that, that we just walk around, are is, is yeah. her private... So, I mean, she's, she's allowed to be driving at 60 miles an hour as well. I mean, yeah. That's amazing. Well, she's not meant to be driving at 60 miles an hour, so she, that's she's hence the queen, apology. You know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> they get married. Yeah. Now, politically, it was a bit awkward because this was a time of terrible austerity, even worse than during the war in the you know, sort of late 40s, early 50s. Power cuts, strikes, mass observation uh, picked up on sort of discontent at the idea of an ostentatious wedding. Yeah. Getting rather reminiscent of yeah, 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 exactly. recent times. A Labour MP wrote to Mountbatten saying that backbenchers would not look... A sympathetic Labour MP, that backbenchers wouldn't look kindly on the public having to fund a really lavish ceremony. 
Mm. Mountbatten wrote back saying that um, he thought Philip would probably try to keep costs down because he's that kind of chap. Uh, but he had persuaded him to take some money. And as Mountbatten said, it really surmounts to this. You've either got to give up the monarchy or give the wretched people who have to carry out the functions of the crown enough money to be able to do it with the same dignity, at least, as the Prime Minister or the Lord Mayor of London has afforded. Mm. Oh, if you're going to do it, do it well. Do it. But um, it's weird that he was saying that Philip would control the cost. So he's actually he's seen as the head of this relationship? Even though he the queen. He's head of the relationship and the right. family. Okay. Uh, well... When of the family, unit, yeah. yeah, but not politically. Mm, okay. um, however, the press strongly got behind the wedding. Mm. They were very much promoting it, writing positive stories, keeping the public involved with the preparations, like making the wedding dress and all this mm. kind of thing. And the public were tired of shortages, tired of austerity, and actually the pomp and ceremony of the royal wedding was something of an escape from yeah, the dreary post-war Yeah, British. a bit like the recent one. Like the recent one. Mm. So actually people quite look forward to it. And indeed, two and a half thousand presents were sent. By just random... By just random people. Ten thousand telegrams as well. Um, There's one great thing where Gandhi um, sent uh, a loincloth. And Queen Mary was quite alarmed because she thought it was his actual loincloth. It would be freezing. Rather than one that he just... I think it was more the distaste of something that had been around that part of Gandhi rather than concern about his his temperature. Um, So he just woven it specially. It wasn't used, as it were. Um, they were married November 1947 Westminster Abbey crowds 50 deep apparently mm-hmm. uh, lining the streets broadcast as something like 200 million people worldwide wow. as Churchill noted the wedding was a flash of colour on the hard road we have to travel yeah so it was it was a circus for them really exactly yeah. something fun George VI a little bit of a poignant moment so he wrote this lovely little letter to afterwards I was so proud and thrilled at having you so close to me on our long walk to Westminster Abbey, but when I handed your hand to the Archbishop, I felt that I'd lost something very precious. I can see that you're sublimely happy with Philip, which is right, but don't forget us, is the wish of your ever-loving and devoted Papa. Oh, poor bloke, that's so sweet. Mm. How long is this before he dies? So this is 48, mm, yes. Is it 48 they get married? Uh, 47 again, from November 47, so it's only five years. Yeah. As she said, she's the heiress presumptive in South Africa, 1947. Defining moment in her life, she turns 21 whilst on tour. She appears on the front cover of Time magazine. Mm. Not for the first time, actually, but the first time as an adult. And she made a stirring pledge to her future subjects, which is very much seen as defining how her reign will be. Right. And again, we can have a little... Okay. I can make my solemn act of dedication with a whole empire listening. I should like to make that dedication now. It is very simple. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have the strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. This is her at 21, laying out her stall, mm. basically. Okay, so the, so if the country's 
on shaky ground, mm. the monarchy is on firm ground. That's what exactly. she's saying. That she's, and this is quite a big moment in a way for the country because this, this is the next generation's mm. monarch. Mm. Okay. And it's quite different to Edward VIII, of course. Yeah. Yes. And his attitude Which to public service. isn't far away in the public's mind, I suppose. Indeed. Mm. Uh, Alan Lascelles, who was so uh, snobby about Prince Philip, he very much enjoyed it. Dusty cynic though I am, it moved me greatly. It has the triumphant ring of the other Elizabeth Tilby speech, mm-hmm. combined with the immortal simplicity of Victoria's I will be good. Yeah, true. Mm. Yeah, nice analysis. So, she's getting some preparation to be monarch. George VI gives her access to the red boxes and diplomatic telegrams. And since South Africa, there's increasing focus on her as the future monarch. Uh, 1951, she frequently stands in for a father, at this time suffering really with ill health, mm. problem with his lungs and mm. all this sort of thing. 1951, a tour of Canada and a visit to Truman in Washington was originally going to be carried out by George VI instead. It's Elizabeth and Philip that do it in his stead. Mm. Right. So she's starting on a world as well as a national front to be representing her father okay. already. So she's getting it used to fulfilling uh, that kind of role. Me, she, so she's definitely... In meeting Truman, which is strange to hear his name yeah. so long ago, but um, he's a head of state. Yes. So she's she's actually acting as mm. as king as queen here. Yeah, standing. Yeah. Mm. Like when, like I suppose now, like Charles probably will do increasingly yeah. for. But at twenty-one, uh, rather than at sixty-four. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> In terms of family life. For the Queen, she does now have her own family. Mm. So Charles, Prince Charles, was born in 1948. Princess Anne, Princess Royal, was born in 1950. In 1949-51, they resided at Clarence House and Guadamangia. Uh, sorry? In Malta. Oh, right. Nice. Philip still in the Navy. Mm. And so, because he's head of the household, Queen kind of follows him off. Just like... Um... Catherine and William then in Anglesey. Mm, exactly. And he's... Yeah. Follows, yeah. follows him off to his posting. But they're not going to have very long to live this kind of life because George VI, worn down by the war, very poor health. Uh, 1951, as we said, not only did the Queen have to stand in for him, but mm. her private secretary, Martin Charteris, actually drafted an accession declaration just in case. Really? In 51? Yeah. 51. So, right. 1952, Elizabeth and Philip went on a tour of Australia and New Zealand via Kenya. Mm. Um, again, in place of George VI, who was originally meant to be going. So, so but her her royal duties obviously then are trumping his naval duties. Yeah. So if, if, they, have if they have to, yeah. Right. Um, George VI weighed them off at London Airport, and then 6th of February 1952, he died in his sleep. So. Elizabeth becomes the first person to accede to the throne whilst abroad since George I in 1714. Because he was in... Uh, Hanover. Hanover, mm. yeah. Right. Uh, she spent the previous night overlooking animals at a waterhole. So she's in Kenya, she hasn't mm. got to Australia at this point. Uh, and there was a delay in the news getting through. Yes, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. 24 hour news, yeah. etc. Um, and a servant actually, so they, the, her staff found out, so a servant actually got sent to sneak into their room and remove a radio. Because otherwise that would have been the first that she'd have heard about what, it. What was the problem with that? Just a bit too shocking. Well, yeah, she hadn't yeah. otherwise heard, so it's yeah. a bit odd to hear. And I guess it wasn't a portable died. radio in those days. It wasn't like a little... <laughs> ellipse, it would have been like removing the bedside table. A, a poignant and yet comical moment that this poor <laughs> yeah. servant has to sneak oh, in and not wake them up. Yeah. Imagine Philip's reaction if he wakes <laughs> yeah, up and sees this guy. Robbing his radio. Yes. <laughs> um, so, 
Philip was told first. Mm. And uh, the servant told him, said, I never felt so sorry for anyone in all my life. He looked as if you dropped half the world on him. He said nothing at all. He just breathed heavily in and out as though he were in shock. And indeed, he probably was in yeah, shock. Fair enough. Uh, we were all in a state of shock, but she was quite calm. I do remember that. She said very little. They were out on the lawn together, alone, away from the rest of us. They walked slowly up and down the lawn, up and down, up and down, while he talked and talked. But Philip is the one that breaks the news to her. And this is the servant recounting that. Yeah, looking back. I'd heard a rumour, which is clearly an urban myth, uh-huh. that she found out by a servant coming in and saying, good morning, your majesty, mm. instead of your highness. Yeah, I think that was a... Nice, though, if it were true. Nice and at the same time is a, <laughs> a bit harsh. A bit insensitive. It would have been the equivalent of... Good morning, your majesty. You mean your highness? No, no, dad's dead. <laughs> <laughs> And Charteris, uh, her secretary said, I can still picture the scene. The Queen sitting at her desk, pencil in hand, making notes. She was sitting upright, erect, utterly resolved. Her cheeks were a little flushed, but there were no tears. Uh-huh. And indeed, she was then saying to people, I'm so sorry we've got to go back. I've ruined everybody's trip. Well, she hasn't. No. Well, he has, if anyone, but nothing. Oh, dear. Poor. I mean, <laughs> does she ever grieve? I th- yeah, I'm sure she does grieve. Mm. But again, in public, she's already... She's queen. She's got a duty to perform. She's been waiting until her life, yeah. Mm. And here it is. So, they come back by plane. Charteris on the plane asks her what name she'd take as queen. Because you can change it, of course. You can change it, yeah. to which she responds, my own name, of course. Elizabeth. Yeah. Not a moment's thought. Um, as he said, I never imagined that anyone could grasp their destiny with such safe hands. Mm. It does seem like she's just sort of been passed a ball and caught it and is yeah. now running with it. And running with the ball. A well-practised move. On the plane, changed into black morning clothes just before it landed. Mm. So she wasn't wearing that the whole time. Um, saw the large black palace cars that had come along and observed, oh, they've sent the hearses. Because that was the name that she and Margaret had always given to the big black vehicles that right. she was travelling. Yeah. Welcomed by Churchill and other dignitaries to the country as Queen. And uh, so welcomed by her Prime Minister. Her Prime Minister. Churchill's back as Prime mm. Minister. So... She's queen. Mm. She has a coronation. Oh, of course she does. Sadly, it doesn't involve her grandmother, Queen Mary, who had lived to see George VI die. Her son, George VI, die. So George V's... George V's wife, wife Queen yeah. Mary. Um, so there's his famous photos of the three queens at his funeral. There's mm. Queen Mary, Queen Mother, Elizabeth, Elizabeth yeah. II. She'd lived through the reigns of her grandmother-in-law, Victoria, her father-in-law, Edward VII, her husband, George V, her first son, Edward VIII, and her second son, George VI, and now mm. into the reign of She didn't II. quite make it. But, well, she makes it into the reign of Elizabeth II, but uh, she finally died on the 24th of March, 1953, at the age of 85. Oh, OK, so, yeah. Um, but she instructed the coronation would go ahead regardless. I imagine she's the sort of person, this is put, completely putting words into her mouth, but I imagine she's <laughs> the sort of person who'd still refer to Victoria as the Queen, or well, when yeah. the Queen was on the throne. Yeah. <laughs> So, coronation is going ahead regardless, even though it's quite close to when it is. Philip was made the chairman of the committee to plan the ceremony, mm. but he was a bit of a lone voice again in advocating modern reforms. And the Queen Mother was determined it should resemble George VI's ceremony as much as possible. Right. Continuity. Probably what the country needed. Probably. Uh, Philip strongly supported the idea of the service being televised. Yeah. But everybody else dead set against it. What, for what reason they just... 
conservatism with a small scene. Archbishop of Canterbury thought it would make the sacred into a spectacle. Churchill thought it would destroy the solemnity and increase the pressure on the Queen. And the Queen herself, initially, she's very conservative-minded, suspicious of new media and new things, very much a traditionalist, so she mm. was quite happy to go along with this. Mm. The press, however, campaigned strongly in favour of it. Yeah. being televised, and uh, obviously the BBC are briefing and really stoking it up as well. Mm-hmm. So when there's this big pressure, the Queen sees what's happening, sees the headlines of Let the People See the Queen, and she told a very reluctant Churchill that uh, she thought the ceremony should be televised. Right. Something which amazed me, and you discovered this relatively recently, it was also recorded in 3D. No, it wasn't. It was. They, 3D is actually quite an old technology. It was around, didn't really work for a while, came back, went away, has come back again recently. I came back, I mean, I always thought it was like Jaws 3D in the 70s. Mm. No, 1953, the coronation was filmed in 3D. That is spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible reaction. That's up there with Bluetooth. So it's not only the first coronation to be televised, but it's also the first and only coronation in this country to be televised in 3D. I mean, I guess they'll, they'll Special do. screenings, obviously, at cinemas. It wasn't really 3D TVs at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I heard about technology used in the Second World War with taking photos from different angles and uh, putting them on top of each other to try and get an idea of how tall mm. the structure was and things like that. But that's, that's blown my mind. Yeah. So they'd have gone to and put special glasses on. Mm. Blue and your red, I imagine, or some kind of shutter thing going on. Oh, wow. I've got to see that. I think Channel 4 apparently did show it. Really? Um, again, relatively recently. Probably I'm for that. Um, so... It was actually 16 months after she acceded to the throne that they have the ceremony, so they had plenty of time to prepare for it. Is that average, though, in these days? It's, well, it's a bit of a while. Westminster was under restoration at the time. Right. And also the economic position was tough. So Churchill, the Prime Minister, said, can't have coronations with bailiffs in the house. <laughs> the final date was actually chosen specifically to avoid a clash with the Derby, where the Queen had a horse running. <laughs> of course. Which uh, came second. Oh, oh so close. Indeed. And she's finally won. Didn't win again until... A main concern was wearing the very heavy St Edward's crown. Mm. So Victoria had worn the imperial state crown, but Elizabeth was determined she'd wear the crown. Right. So she actually went around the days before practising, wearing it on her head just to get used to the weight. It must be jolly heavy. Mm. Like a couple of bags of sugar, two yeah. pounds or something. Mm. Mm. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury Fisher um, provided one of the only real moments of um, slapstick levity. I love coronations. They're like, oh, come this on. Was, this was actually in the rehearsal rather than the main day itself. Okay. Um, but he was trying to show the maids of honour how to walk down the stairs from the throne, but unfortunately he tripped on his cassock and rolled down the stairs. Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, I've got Rowan Atkinson being the, <laughs> the archbishop in my head here. Nothing well, better than the archbishop rolling around. What I love about Rex Hatcher is every single episode we have a coronation and they <laughs> always deliver... Someone always messes up. Yeah. Also, especially invented for this was a new dish uh, invented by Rosemary Hume of the London Cookery School. It was initially called the Poulet Reine Elizabeth. Oh no! But they changed the name Coronation oh, oh, Chicken. What's her name? Rosemary Hume. She—that's who we've got to blame. Then. Coronation Chicken, cold chicken, spices, and mayonnaise, and raisins. Mm. Often raisins. Away the, oh. Apparently, the mayonnaise is crucial as to whether it's palatable or not. Mm, yeah, I'm sure it's still not. <laughs> Her coronation gown was deni- uh, designed by Norman Hartnell, embroidered with Tudor rose, thistle, leek, shamrock, a maple leaf, a wattle. What's that? Something for Australia. Okay. Australian listeners, please let us know. A silver fern. Naturally. 
Protea, uh-huh. uh, South Africa. Uh, yeah. oh, Lotus yeah. flowers for India, okay, long. Wheat, cotton, and jute, for Pakistan. So all okay. these key Commonwealth yeah. British countries represented. Brilliant. On the day, it was raining, mm. but the crowds still lining the processional route. There was a starring role, particularly for the Queen of Tonga, who was one of the guests, who was um, waving in an open-air carriage, fabulously dressed, ignoring the rain. Yeah. Made a big impression. Cool. A big character, but she dieted pretty much on roast suckling pig for the rest of her <laughs> life. That sounds delicious, but it's somewhat fattening. <laughs> Churchill was delighting in his uniform um, as the warden of the Sankport. Oh, right. Was he still holding that? Honorary title. That used to be a, a royal thing, wasn't it? They'd have sort of mm. royal family held it in the past. Mm, I think it was an honorary title that mm. could be bestowed. The ceremony is one of those incredible things to go back to reference our past. Still many elements of it, same as those devised by Dunstan. Oh, for goodness sake. In 973. Oh, so it's still it's... all the stuff that actually continues. For I can't believe that we <laughs> finally put him to rest a thousand years ago. Yeah. And he's, still... and he's made the final episode. Yeah. Um, and the revisions up to about 1689, and from that point on it's been pretty consistent. Uh, she sat on St Edward's chair, took the coronation, coronation oath, and uh, as the assembly sang Zadok the priest... Love it. Uh, she had her finery removed and under a canopy, so this was the only bit not shown on TV. She was anointed with holy oil on her head and heart, with the spoon, which is the only thing surviving from the royal regalia before the Civil War. Oh, wow. So the only thing Cromwell didn't get his dirty mitts on <laughs> to melt down. Uh, she received the spurs representing chivalry, the sword of state, the crown jewels, i.e. the orb, the scepter, uh, one with the dove, one with the cross, and the sovereign's ring. The Archbishop of Canterbury places St Edward's crown on her head. The assembly cries, God save the Queen, and a 21-gun salute is fired from the Tower of London. And she's Queen. That's a lot of bling. She must look like 50 cents. <laughs> exactly. That's, how did she move? She wasn't expected to move with all that. Bling, not, not dramatically. Well, she would have moved a little bit. Slowly, I suppose. Yeah, very yeah. slowly. Uh, took the coronation oath and the consecration very seriously. She genuinely believes that mm. it's a God-given right and duty, importantly. Duty, really, yeah. Uh, to roll. Lots of people bought TVs especially just to watch the coronation in this country. Mm. It's a big moment in the history of television here. Something like 20 million people, so about 56% of the adult population in Britain watched it. Mm. About 12 million listened as well. Something like 69% of the English-speaking adult population of South Africa were listening to it. Another 85 million in the American, in the the United States were. The numbers aren't as impressive as, say, the recent... Royal wedding or perhaps parts of the Jubilee, but... In the context the time, of TV just having... Yeah. ...really taking off. That's something that people have. Yeah. A lot of people watching. Churchill reflected, We have had a day which the oldest were proud to have lived to see, and which the youngest will remember all their lives. But on, isn't he as ever? And the Queen's reflection and the speech to her people... The ceremonies you have seen today are ancient, and some of their origins are veiled in the mists of the past. But their spirit and their meaning shine through the ages, never perhaps more brightly than now. I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service, as so many of you are pledged to mine. Throughout all my life, and with all my heart, I shall strive to be worthy of your trust. And she's stuck to it ever since. She has. And we shall see how she has stuck to it in our next episode yeah, that's yeah. where we're going to leave her having been crowned I think it makes sense to do it in two because mm. there's a lot there 
There's a lot to come. A lot to come. So that is it for the first half, the biography of Queen Elizabeth II. Join us next time when we will go from 1953 to the heady heights of 2013. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe even 14. I mean, I was going to say till today, but it won't be today when we do it. No, because no, it yeah, will be exactly. even further yeah, till, down the line. Till you next hear us. Till you next hear us. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Cheerio. Oh, hang on. <laughs> I normally say, I just yeah. said goodbye, didn't I? Did I say goodbye? I said yeah. goodbye from me. I said it as well. Okay. Until then. Goodbye. Cheerio. That was confusing. <laughs>